Mr. President, the managers on the part of the House of Representatives are present and ready to present the articles of impeachment, which have been preferred by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. The poll just came out. Wall Street Journal just came out. Look at this. Farmer approval of Trump hits record. The good news is that the partisan circus in the House is over. Nancy Pelosi's circus is done. And, and, and we're not going to see the, the one-sided show trial that, that, that the House is engaged in for months and months and months. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Oh my God, I'm tired. I've got to tell you a word about trolling because I'm in the trolling barrel myself right now. My feeling about trolling is sort of my same thought about dieting. You know, you ask yourself, is the real danger of life that you're going to eat the wrong stuff and gain weight? Or is it that you'll forfeit your happiness for fear of 20 pounds? So here's the analogy with trolling. It sucks to be in the barrel with trolls. I've had this since 1998, I think, when in comment sections in Slate. They call you brain damaged and racist. They say they want to rape you and dump digital blood on you like Carrie. But what sucks way worse than the, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but Twitter memes won't hurt me, you know, try to keep that in your head. What sucks way worse than a 15 minutes in the barrel on Twitter is to put your life and convictions and career and freedom and pursuit of happiness and truth on hold for fear of that bad quarter of an hour of playground taunts. We can't be held hostage by trolls. If you've got a word to say against one of the candidates or in favor of your candidate, or you've got more to say about Trump, or you're willing to risk calling the Nazis what they are, do it. I'm telling you, I'm on the other side of many, many trolling campaigns, and you too can do it. The most important thing is to not let the specter of trolls defeat your will to speak out. So my guest today knows something about trolls, about swimming in the opposite direction against the current. Rick Wilson is a longtime political strategist for the Republicans. I mean, he's a person on a first-name basis with the Rogers, Stone and Ailes. He'll say, Roger does this or Roger did that. But starting about eight years ago, Rick Wilson started to get a hinky feeling from the Republican Party, the Rush Limbaugh's and then the Sarah Palin's. And he tried to hold on and get in lockstep with Fox News, but the party he thought was losing its way. Today, he is one of the preeminent, never in a million lifetimes until the earth explodes into the sun, Trumper. And he's joined up with others in his lane to create Project Lincoln. Project Lincoln says it's dedicated to holding accountable those who would, it's pretty grand, violate their oath to the Constitution and put others before Americans. Mm, that sounds bad. In practice, Project Lincoln is a campaign to defeat Donald Trump and exert pressure on politicians who support him, asking them to take principled stands against Trump and for their country. He's going to explain more about that. Rick is, he's so prolific, it's actually hard to say his bio. He's also a Twitter babbler par excellence, the author of the number one New York Times bestselling uh, book, Everything Trump Touches Dies. He has a new book just out January 14th, just a couple days ago, called Running Against the Devil, A Plot to Save America from Trump and Democrats from Themselves. 
I'm super excited to have Rick Wilson back on Trumpcast. Welcome, Rick. Thank you. You're an ideological person. I think you have principles and beliefs like a lot of people in Project Lincoln. I do. And, and a lot of them aren't the same principles of sort of the generic republicanism. Yeah. First off, I'm not an evangelical. Yeah. And so that, you know, is one strike against me, I guess, in the current Republican world. Do you have a religious disposition? Catholic-ish. Mm-hmm. And was there a time, maybe I'll go back there, where you saw at least the path of Opus Dei and of Steve Bannon? And No, no, okay. no. Okay. No, All right. No. And a big reason for that is that as a constitutionalist, yeah. and as someone who believes that, that our system is in fact not a Christian-derived system, but a system built for a, a degree of religious tolerance. Because mm-hmm. I've read more of the founders than, say, the Bill O'Reilly version. <laughs> I look at the role of the church and the state as separate completely and deliberately and powerfully separate, as they well should be. Yeah. And if you ever get into the place where the country starts to pick and choose favored religious groups, it's my view that it is an extraordinarily dangerous precedent an extraordinarily dangerous moment that can lead to terrifyingly bad outcomes. We may have talked about this before, but uh, my father's family is Catholic. You know, he's one of nine and his father, like all good Catholics in Boston, you know, worked for the Kennedys and was obstetrician to Rose and to some of the brothers and sisters, right? I just saw that he made it in who's who in American Catholics. Do you think he would have made it there in 1946? In any case, he definitely was a church and state person because Catholics were a little scared. And rightly so, because... They wanted to be tolerated. Right. They wanted to have their Catholic hospitals and have people stop telling them they needed to use birth control because they had this idea of big families and they didn't want to be discriminated against that way. And he found his way to an anti-abortion position that way on the grounds that whatever, he believed that all women wanted to be mothers and they shouldn't be forced to have abortions by nefarious doctors. Now, we obviously disagree on this, but it made sense to me that he would think we Catholics have an esoteric moral position on this one gynecological procedure and we want to be allowed as a moral question, not a legal question. We want a moral question to be able to live our way, not eat meat on Fridays, worship in a way that you all might find creepy, but just leave Leave us alone, right? And right. no idea that the government was supposed to assume these moral burdens. That's correct. And look, while I don't go too far into the whole like Christianist conspiracy theory, yeah, I don't think that there is a super organized group of either evangelical Christians or Opus Dei style Catholics seeking to you know reformulate the government. I do think that their political power is quite remarkable in our current situation, driven by not an affirmative belief in the power of their particular religious practices or religious inclinations, but driven by the power of their weaponized degree of inferiority and their weaponized degree of belief that they are the ones who are facing this outrage. I mean, if you ask a conservative evangelical about the state of Christianity in America, they will describe for you a group of people who are beleaguered on every side, that churches are being burned to the ground, that their mm-hmm. that their faith is under daily challenge, even though they represent the plurality, and Christians, of course, represent a vast majority yep. of religious practice in this country. And also they have, by, you know, 85% of their vote, they have their guy in office. This is one of the things yep. that's confusing to me. I feel like right after the far right won the election in 2016, they were back to, we've got to own the libs. You want to be like, you won. 
Like, aren't you happy? You have pence. That's the thing is they will never be happy. Yeah. There's never enough. It's always still going to be, you know, the godless horde is at my door and they're going to force me to get gay married and then practice Sharia law. Yeah. You know, because actual religious persecution of Christians does happen in the world. Mm. It does not happen here. I remember people getting really happy about Darfur. Like every time you find one example of Christians in trouble abroad, it's like a party here because you get to justify that the war on Christmas is creeping across the world. Right. And some of it becomes so comic opera and the war on Christmas and the idea that school prayer is going to solve our problems. And that's the only reason that we've got a, a terrible situation out there right now. And we've just got to break down those doors. And again, I say this because I truly believe that the design spec of our Constitution mm-hmm. is to prevent that. It is not to allow that. It is explicit. The founders were very, very clear about not wanting a state religion of any description. This wasn't equivocal. In fact, there's almost more descriptive text on this matter than any other in the social space in the Constitution. The difficulty I think a lot of Christians have is that they engaged in two enormous social battles in this country. Mm -hmm. They fought abortion to basically a draw because Americans have a sort of uneasy truce about abortion. You know, contrary to the progressive view, Americans are not out there thinking abortion is an unmitigated social good all the time by huge numbers. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, they also understand that a blanket ban on abortion has very negative externalities. Mm -hmm. So we have this sort of uneasy truce. And, you know, both sides would nudge each other back and forth. But we've been on the 50-yard line on this for a long time. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I've studied this in polling and focus groups for a very, very damn long time. And it's right where it should be for where the society is. We do not make it into a thing to cheer about, but we don't ban it outright and go all handmaid's tale. Yeah. There's a middle ground we've hit. And evangelicals were not thrilled by that neutral position on it. And I've been trying to examine some of the predicates. Like when I started splitting off, it wasn't just Trump. Yep. And I can't remember if it was 12 or 14, but Mm. I was quoted in some article and I said, you know, As a conservative, I believe gay marriage should be the law of the land and allowed in this country because what the fuck business is it of the government to tell people of consenting age and mental status who they can marry? Mm. Why is that the government's business in any dimension? Yeah. And Rush Limbaugh went on the air and lost his shit about me by name. Wow. I mean, just lost his goddamn mind. The evangelicals were not fans of me after that. You know, when you bring up Limbaugh, I don't know about his levels of piety and church attendance. Um, zero. Right. So his leveraging of the abortion issue reminds me of something Stephen Hassan said. You know, he's written this book about the cult of Trump. He's an ex-Mooney himself. Yeah, yeah. Interesting guy. And he was saying that as a recruiting tool, abortion, because if something has an issue, has sex and babies in it, it's almost like virgins that will greet you in heaven if you uh, commit jihad. <laughs> right. That it's, it's just the perfect recruiting tool. It gets in your head that you're on a holy mission, your own economic status be damned, your own children be damned, your relationships with everybody be damned. The person you're voting for, even if he no doubt has used plenty of birth control and probably paid for some abortions in his time, even if you seem to be violating everything you believe in, you're in that moony revelation state of mind where you will do anything. Because you've decided that some occult forces are at work killing babies. Right. I mean, I consider myself to be 
Bush pro-life. Yeah, you know, okay. They've been since life of the mother question. But I do not want government, state or federal, to intervene on the matter. Mm-hmm. It is a personal moral choice. And if that's your moral choice, I don't think government's role is to decide what moral choices people, people make. And I, I mean, I view that as a conservative. Even though I consider myself to be pro-life, it's not the role of the state to dictate who has or who doesn't have babies. Do you remember Tommy Laren said this? She said, you know, I want the government's hands off my gun and I want the government's hands off my uterus or whatever. And then everyone said, whoa, we had given you this long leash and now you're breaking with us on this dogma. And she kind of walked it back and she does not talk about abortion anymore. So this was something that conservatives like you, who are good talkers and know how to strategize and have principles, have had to decide abortion really is starting to seem like one of those things that people turn weird. They stop remembering it's the economy stupid. They forget the Constitution. When people talk about abortion, they get weird. Well, you know, Virginia, one of the other things about that, it speaks to the major underpinning of evangelical excuse-making for Trump. Yes. And it's not abortion. They don't go to abortion. What they say is, we want Trump to appoint the judges who will do what we want on abortion. Right. Now, Republicans spent generations, not like decades, generations decrying judicial activism. They spent generations bitching and moaning that liberal judges on the court were shaping, they were, were conducting legislation without the Congress. Yep. What they desperately want, because they lost in their minds the mm-hmm. abortion battle, mm-hmm. and they definitely lost the gay marriage battle, which also vexes them dramatically. Mm-hmm. What they want is activist judges. They want judges who are not going to interpret the Constitution, but who are rather going to say, my faith tells me I must do this about that. I just don't like jihadis on either side. Or what am I saying? Sides. Anywhere. So 2012, you start to feel like, wait a second. Well, I'm putting words in your mouth, but wait a second. The Rush Limbaugh crowd have gotten completely body snatched and brain hijacked by these issues that violate our commitment to the Constitution, even on the right. And also, they're willing to go to any lengths to savage people who walk out of lockstep, including would-be libertarians or however you define yourself. So was there a reckoning? Did you go home and like really sit and say, is this my party anymore? Or did you still think, well, there's a George Bush, there's a strain in this that's still me, and I'm going to stick with it? I will tell you, in the beginning of 15, when Trump got, or the middle of 15, when Trump got in the race, I raced up to New York because I had a moment of panic. I admitted to myself that my candidate, who was Marco Rubio, and I was working for a super PAC that was going to support Marco with many zeros. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a Bush guy. I worked for Bush 41, both in the campaign and in the administration for the W2000 campaign, the RNC. I worked for the, I mean, 39 states, hundreds of candidates and super PACs, all these priors that left me squarely in the electoral mainstream of the Republican consultocracy. (laughs) I could work for liberal candidates. I could work for conservative candidates. If it fit, we did it. And my job wasn't to be some sort of ideological policeman for these guys. My job was to get them elected. But I had this feeling the minute Trump got on the scene, I was like everybody else publicly dismissive, but I had a private moment of panic. And I recognized something. I was like, I love Marco to death. He is not strong enough to take this guy. I love Jeb. He was one of the greatest governors in Florida. But I thought Jeb is going to go out there and this guy will punch him and punch him and punch him again and again. And he can't handle it. 
Hmm. I've always known Ted Cruz was a pussy with a glass jaw. <laughs> you know, he's every fucking Ivy punk I've ever met, every fucking Ivy League guy I've ever met who thinks that this is some sort of debating society. And when you, when you call him out and tell him his dad killed JFK and his wife is ugly, he doesn't like respond like a man. He cowers. You know, and I just looked at the field and I was like, this is bad. And I recognized something that I had been grinding away on in my head for a long time, which was the palinization of the party and the Fox effect. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a period from like 12, 14, where the establishment kind of punched back about some of these Tea Party style candidates because they weren't just Tea Party, they were cuckoo. Yeah. But now the lunatics are running the asylum and the most powerful force in American politics left or right, by the way, is Fox News. I'm sure you are a fan of succession like I am. Oh, yes. When the Roy family is contemplating cashing out, they don't really care who takes it. Even if if it's a lefty, they'd sell to anyone. And it sort of feels like Apple in a way, where without Steve Jobs, people thought Apple might be nothing, that it was a cult of personality. And it turns out it was a product company. They actually had products. You could have a quieter, less culty CEO in Tim Cook, and the stock price wouldn't be hurt. Do you think that's true in this case? Are there assets at Fox News, independent of just having a certain mind share, eye share, that they would need to preserve if they sold it? I mean, are there enough Fox News cultists, ideologues, whatever in this country that if it moved left or if it just started to track and make sense or if it had fewer carnies on it would say, you know, I'm not watching anymore and it's over. Well, there's a problem with Fox that that they're well aware of inside, and that is the demographic clock. Yeah. You know, when Roger started Fox back in 96 and 97, when it started to really take off, Fox had a average audience age of around 53. Hmm. It's the same goddamn audience. It just gets older. You've got a bunch of people in Sun City Center, Florida, yeah. who love them some Sean Hannity, that nice young man. <laughs> Clean cut. And they can't get away from them. Uh, there is a part of Fox where they're wondering, they're like, well, shit, you know, our audience is ancient. That's why it's all like adult diaper ads yeah. and heart attack ads. And so there's a little bit of a panic about that. But they're also kind of worried that the brand is attracting weaker and weaker advertising products. Oh. They're not getting the big car brands, the big liquor brands, and all the things that, that really count when you're talking about you know a network. They're not a prestige network in that regard. And if they can't maintain that and they don't maintain that, you know, there will be a point where the diminishing returns of catering to one narrow ideological spectrum may become very marked. Also, you know, when you say catering to, it's as if this spectrum existed without Fox News. I'm guessing you share my view that the sort of the medium is the message here. They're not like people sitting around wanting to watch premium succession on HBO. It's the thing missing in their lives. And then they suddenly get it served up to them. I mean, Ailes and Murdoch made this market. Sure. I'm going to quote you, a culturally underserved market. That's that's how I think about it. One way to think about the red counties. It, is, it absolutely is. Right. They didn't see themselves. They, there wasn't a Lawrence Welk. There wasn't a Walter Cronkite that just where they said, you know, that's me. That's measured me. Silent majority. I like it. I like a certain amount of entertainment. I like the old combo from the Ed Sullivan show, some Beatles songs, whatever that was like. So much centrist culture. And, you know, all of a sudden, 
The summer before the election, I went to see hidden figures about Black women at NASA who had contributed mathematicians that had been unsung. And I just sort of thought, this is mainstream entertainment. It's we haven't not just we haven't recognized recognized women's accomplishments or black women's accomplishments, but it's black women's accomplishments in aerospace and technology that we've moved to a very it's a very worthy revisionist thing. But how do you know, how does your guy in Florida see himself in that movie? And what's he watching instead? And what he's watching is and this is where I'm quoting you. You felt that. Culturally underserved, that this market was just sitting ducks for the the soft porn that Fox served up to them. The legs, the ale stuff. I call it agit porn. Agit porn. Agit porn. That's fantastic. Right. So because the evangelicals had raged against pornography and even, you know, in favor of abstinence and, you know, pretty draconian positions on sexuality, no one had had a titrated account of a version of porn, you know, with with Playboy or whatever. So just their senses, once they could click from Fox News to Pornhub, must have just been flooded. Well, you know, Roger told a story back in the day. Okay. And Roger liked me. Okay. Roger always liked me. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I was a young guy coming up. Roger was somebody I could learn from because, look, he, love him or hate him, the guy was the architect of multiple successful presidential campaigns. Yeah. There's no other Roger out there, by the way. There is no other Roger. There has never been a guy like Roger in the in the political space. Except one other Roger Stone. Well, but... no, Roger Stone has always been full of shit. Okay. Roger Stone has never done a goddamn campaign for decades. Roger Stone's product is Roger Stone. Okay. So Roger Ailes, you're probably the only guest who's ever said, I liked Roger, worked with Roger. This is the thing I don't understand about Ailes as a businessman. I also don't understand it about Weinstein. You know what I'm going to say. What is the model where you're willing to trade, you know, pinching some girl's butt for so many millions of dollars to make her not talk about it? I mean, honestly, let me give you a story Roger used to tell people. Okay, it blew me away and it was completely on point. And it was one of those moments of like the inadvertent telling of the truth. Yeah. Okay. Roger's asked, it's Roger. How did you make Fox successful? He goes, look, I go out and I appeal to the working man. And I hire great looking girls with great hair and big tits from cheap J schools. Yeah. It's such a cynical fucking thing, but it's absolutely the truth. The people at Fox who were on the journalism side for whatever period of time that existed, and there have been over the years on the day side, have been completely eclipsed by this fucking circus of charlatans. And they don't have a relevant role to play any longer at Fox. There's nothing there on the journalism side of any meaningful degree or import. Yeah. But, you know, there is a model now of journalism, and I use that term somewhat loosely, that is the Fox model, that is the own the libs, right. the modern mighty Wurlitzer of far-right propaganda <laughs> that Fox has sort of become. The thing is, owning the libs seemed, I could see it as kind of, an interesting sport for Fox News and its lane um, during Obama. But um, they have had to become, it's increasingly like a really slurry, methy tone poem because their side, their guys, Giuliani, now Parnas, have self-owned in so many ways that it's really hard. It's so hard to find a lib to own these days. I worry about them. No, I I got you. (laughs) Their conceit inside of Trump world and Fox world is that that sort of behavior represents like this apotheosis of political manhood. 
Yeah. They're the tough guys. They're the badasses. They're the ones who are gonna who are gonna, you know, say fuck you and get in your face. And as we know, they are the most delicate, weepy little bitches the minute you punch them. Yeah. <laughs> they cry like infants the minute you step up to them. Well, that's what I mean about, I mean, I really came to this after talking to Stephen Hassan. He said also that the environment is a big recruiting tool on the left. And if if you just black box the issue here, it says clearly not to say that abortion and, and there isn't something interesting that sane people can talk about. And there are things to be done for the working man and for and for the environment, obviously. But the thing of them being recruiting tools and appeals to the like s- most vulnerable, sensitive, sensey, like weak-headed pile of mush in you that like worries about things that aren't happening and all, you know, all the time is this crazy frustrating shift for those of us who grew up thinking that the Republicans were the party of the head. You know, the bleeding hearts were on the left and we were constantly correcting for it. And then it turns out you guys are crying. I mean, sorry, your former guys are always so hurt. The emotional nature of current publicism, it's so neurasthenic and it's so yes. fainting couch. Yes. And there's so much pearl clutching. Yeah, you know, It's like a Victorian romance. Yes. And there's always this, you've offended me. Oh, I'm so offended by your by your classism. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry. And I look, I, I I come from a privileged background, but I was raised by a very colorful set of family members and a very colorful background. I get along with everybody. Yeah. I talk to anybody. Yep. But this idea that there is virtue in ignorance and that is it is a political sin to tell people, no, you're not smart, you're not right, and you're being a fucking racist or you're pursuing something that is a social evil. Yeah. That idea is now an article of faith on the Trump right where where any criticism of them is merely from it merely from you know your your arrogance from your from your privilege. Yeah. You know what? I'm sorry. Sometimes you're not going to get a fucking participation trophy from me. Yeah. You're not going to get a pat on the head when you're when you're doing something that is stupid or horrible or racist for me to say, "Oh, well, you know, the libs caused you to do that." Yeah. That's okay. You go ahead this time and go ahead and play footsie with the alt right because you know, you never know what those antifa are going to do next. No bullshit. I just will not tolerate it. And I know that's one of the reasons I'm sort of an apostate now. Mm -hmm. I just will not allow that shit to play. As like a bit of a shit story yourself, you like a a raw provocation here and there. And you also like to make things happen in the world. And you talked to Roger Ailes and said, you know, this is an interesting this is an interesting phenomenon to serve these these culturally politically underserved people and to do it in these ways. Sex sells a little bit like, you know, when I was making what looked like a lefty magazine in New York, we did every story we could on Sony because you could use a naked picture of uh, of Mariah Carey. So you do a business story and it's secretly a sexy story right sure. i mean that's just that's just media so you get into it you're morally flexible enough or or not intolerant so intolerant that you don't think that's kind of fun but when does it lurch when do you look at at listen to rush limbaugh you know, hating you for saying something that's just constitutionally obvious about abortion. And then look at Sarah Palin and say, these are carnies. I don't want to go this far. Look, I I, honestly, I tried to defend Palin for a long time. Okay. And I tried to be a good soldier for a long time because I will say this, and this is a weird thing. This is one of the mysteries of Palin. Before she was the VP nominee, this woman was universally regarded in Alaska as a good governor. It was weird. And then I'm not talking about just just Republicans. I had a Democratic governor at the time go, 
she spoke, she's, she's got a real few, well, before McCain. Yeah. The only time I'd ever heard of her was one, a Democratic governor, I was at the National Governors Association, and he said, you know, I just met Sarah Palin, she's so impressive. And I, I know, I mean, today, no one would say that, like, what? I think reality TV really ruined her. One of the things that I go back to, one of the things, do you remember this? Katie Couric was interviewing her during the campaign when she what was books with do you read? What books do you read? And then I think she also asked her, what do you, like, what are President Wilson's 14 points, right? Right. We were supposed to be appalled that she didn't know what they were. And everybody was talking about this. And then a couple people pulled me aside and said, do you know what those 14 points are? And I said, absolutely not. I bet Rick Wilson doesn't even. I'm a historian and I couldn't couldn't remember all. (laughs) Nobody knows the 14 points. Yeah, so I thought, like, we've really framed these people as dumb. And they'll answer questions that nobody knows the answer to. And that will just deepen our impression that, you know, they've got to be dumb. I mean, by the way, if Trump can even count to 14, I think he's having a good day. So, you know, the idea that she that not knowing the 14 points is a precondition for being president or vice president is uh, that ship has sailed. I have a story for you. Okay. Every time we do a survey where we're we're kind of concerned people aren't going to be straight with us. Yeah. We throw in a couple of test questions. Yeah. I, I mentioned this in the book, a couple of dummy test questions. And one of them is, do you favor or oppose the Wilson Santiago bill? Oh my God. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Right. About 65% of the time, people will say, oh, I know what that is. Uh, and they will say, I favor it or I oppose it. <laughs> and I can say, you can lure them into this moment where you know that they're bullshitting you. Yeah. And it's kind of handy because, you know, you voters, the socially desirable response of voters is to pretend that they're informed. Interesting. Okay, I didn't realize that. I've I've mentioned on this show before that a buddy of mine who voted for Trump came to me after he's in corrections, and he came to me after immediately, Muslim ban, and said, man, I really regret it. I'm just a low-information voter. And I just thought, I love that someone can say that about themselves. It's just not, it's not, not easy to say you're a low-information no. voter, but you know what? I'm a low-information sports watcher. I'll vote for whoever. Right. Well, yeah, for look, whoever. You, know, you get me with sports ball, I mean, outside of, say, college football, yeah. I, I am not knowledgeable of the sport ball. I would go with that. <laughs> I would go with anyone anyone told me to root for. And I would pretend to know what a Wilson Santiago interception was in a second. So anyway, so I didn't realize that. People like to seem informed when you're doing polls and and talking to them in the hinterlands. Everywhere, honestly. There's actually very little difference between them and what you would think are urban high information metropolitan city voters. So Fox maybe seems potentially exciting and you give Palin a chance. You try to be a good soldier saying, you know, she's interesting and she's a woman and that this calls the bluff of the left that they're saying that we can't have a an interesting progressive ticket that looks like America. And here we are with, you know, working class white mother who ran a state that's what what is it? One hundred and twenty percent male. Um, so, you know, she's tough and she's got guns and she can see Alaska. The other part of the Palin thing is it was hard to figure out how to handle Sarah Palin as a political force in part because Roger and Fox instantaneously weaponized her, not against Obama, but against the Republican establishment. Ah, okay. Right. They saw her as a vector for an attack against the Republican establishment. Got it. Because there's nothing anybody hates more there's nothing any extremist, left or right, hates more than the center. That's right. I get this from the lefties who say I've got blood on my hands as a neoliberal who somehow killed Gaddafi. Right. Why is it you don't favor the 
the Aristos being led to the guillotine. Yes, exactly. Okay, what do you think Ailes and Murdoch or Ailes in particular were thinking at that point? They hadn't quite coined the idea of conservatives. They were thinking the word ka-ching. <laughs> okay, ka-ching servatives. Yeah, they, <laughs> they were thinking she's the hot soccer mom yep. and that we're going to turn her into this star and we're going to make her a centerpiece. And they did for several years. Yeah, interesting. Right. I mean, I, I don't know what she was making at Fox, but I assure you it won nothing. So they were counter-programming, and we've talked about the history of reality television on this show, but they were counter-programming what, you know, the real world had changed into the surreal life long ago, actual show, showing kind of, you know, and then they ended up in celebrity rehab, but showing people that were like the whack pack come to life. And you get more time on air, the sexier and weirder and mentally impaired and more addicted you were, and... People who've been on reality TV from the beginning say everything around you, including the producer assigned to you, are trying to get you to get airtime. And, you know, you're in this bacchanal and you want the camera. And so you start doing things you might not otherwise do. And I don't think the former governor of, of Alaska saw herself being framed as in that way. I mean, that's my that's my sympathy for Sarah Palin bid. No, I, I don't think she saw herself that way. And and she was surrounded in the post-campaign environment by a squad of epic grifters. Okay, got it. So when these grifters that to many of us have only recently come to light, you know, so many of the so many people I didn't realize that Giuliani had slid in his direction. I didn't realize that, you know, people were advising candidates abroad and that a lot of people were on the take like Manafort from torturers and weirdos and be acting like stone. Their projection on that is so magnificent all the time. <laughs> they hate anybody who works for a foreign government or candidate or yeah. party, unless it's Rudy or uh, unless it's a Trump or Corey Lewandowski. I have done foreign work for overseas political parties, but I have never worked for as an advocate in the U.S. Like we helped Merkel years and years ago. As an example, yeah, we did some work for the Taiwanese party years and years ago in Taiwan, never been a lobbyist for any foreign power in the U.S. So last year I go to this forum, the Doha Forum in Qatar. Oof. Yeah, right. Crazy. Sean Spicer speaks there. Corey Lewandowski is on a lobbyist for them. Brian Ballard makes a million dollars a month from them. Yeah. All these Trump guys. I literally get trolled in my Twitter every day. Why do you serve Qatar? Why are you a slave to Qatar? And it's crazy because these guys, they have people right in front of them who are in the pocket of foreign governments. I mean, set aside Jared Kushner. Right. And they they get this, this fake outrage about it. And it's just part of this culture of theirs where they are utterly blind to anything that isn't performative, you know, support of Donald Trump. Okay, you start to see people getting the the grifters, right? And the and the Roger Stones maybe yeah. like going to like squandering people's money on his tired, obsolete, dirty tricks that don't even work anymore and he's just performing himself. Then you have slight in an overlapping Venn diagram, you have the carnies of Fox News who are, right. you know, producing Sarah Palin to be something other than she is and hamming her up and making her into a cartoon and also then the evangelicals who seem to be stuck in a rut. And you look back at your pocket constitution and consult your heart and your family and just say, and and also Rubio loses the nomination. And at what point... Well, by the way, by the way, 
when Rubio, when Rubio started to fail. Yeah. And again, I was on the super PAC side, so I wasn't able to like talk to them on the daily. I couldn't reach out to them by law. Got and it. Weirdly enough, one of the things I also was sort of always famous for was I never got in trouble huh. in campaigns, okay. not because I didn't do crazy shit, yeah. but because I had lawyers who said, don't do this. This is the jail thing. Right. Go through the jail thing. Yeah. But this idea when, when Rubio was blown out and Jeb was blown out and slowly but surely all the options narrowed, I, I just started speaking out more directly about Trump mm-hmm. and I noticed the reaction very quickly. Okay. And the reaction was shock that I would pick the queen of hell, the spawn of the devil, the bride <laughs> of Satan herself, mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton, over the flawed but lovable Donald Trump. Got it. And it was a truly revelatory moment that the party guys who had always been such purists, mm-hmm. and boy, I used to get shit all the time. Oh, why are you in Washington state trying to elect a pro-choice Republican? Because we're not going to elect a pro-life Republican, you fuckers. Yep. Why are you in Vermont doing doing a liberal Republican? Because you're not going to elect a conservative. Next question. You want a Republican of some kind or no kind? But then it became the only purity check was, are you with Trump or not? I mean, Ted Cruz at the convention even said, vote your conscience and wouldn't go all in for him. So there must have been some squeamish people. And remember when Paul Ryan like was just like, oh, forget it. We'll just move down ticket after Access Hollywood. Yeah. Well, Paul had a choice to make. Trump was elected and he chose not to do it. Yeah. And he paid a price. And the, and obviously, 42 Republican congressional members paid a very steep price. And the Republican Party will continue to pay that price because they purged out everybody who, in an era where Trump is a demonstrated loser in terms of down ballot races. I mean, in Virginia, it's not just the House. The Democrats have taken back roughly 650 legislative and local seats in this country since Trump. Yep. In the course of 20 years before Trump, the Republicans slowly but surely stole about 2,000 seats from the Democrats, which were 38 state legislatures. That is reversing now because of Donald Trump. Who do you look to? Like you, now you have this little posse of never Trumpers who are amazing and formidable and interesting. And they're, you know, up and down the, the some of them are hyper intellectuals and some of them are rank and file and some of them are George Conway and so on. So this is this pretty powerful group of people, but they weren't your like home girls and boys before this, right? Oh, look, we all worked, you know, the, the consulting world is not huge. Okay. And we've all had different roles that we've played in different campaigns we worked in, but everybody knows everybody. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not a coincidence that we, okay. we have each other's phone numbers. And so did you see each other in the hallway and like it, wherever you hang out? Okay. More like green rooms, but you know. Okay. Green rooms, even at Fox and say to each other, like, this isn't good. I'm not doing this. Everybody says that. And you know who also says that all the time? What? Elected Republicans who pretend to love Trump. Yeah. And there are a lot of them. Yeah. There are fewer in office now than there were in the beginning. Like a lot of the people that used to call me and cry and scream and beg and like, how do I fix this? And I would say, you have to run against him and take the shit. They're all gone now. You know why? 
because they wouldn't run against him and take his shit. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what the Arizona guy said. Yeah, unless you're four square with Trump. I remember you always put it that way. It just seemed like hell. I mean, that's a that's something good about, you know, just battle scarred freaks like you and maybe me yeah. that we just have taken, you know, you, you do need to go a bunch of rounds with like trolling to understand that you can handle it. You can yeah. definitely get called a traitor to the hmm, a million times. And, right. you know, it's, I think Samantha B said, when, you know, it really hurts when they call you fat a hundred and hundred thousand times on the right. hundred and thousand and one first time. You just don't care. You know, it's like an interesting thing. My favorite. They have these tropes that they're always trying on me. One of them is you're bald, Wilson. I'm <laughs> like, no way. Right. And oh, my God. I'm going to go home and cry. Thank you right. for enlightening me. I get all this. Like, you're bald. You're yeah. old. I'm like, you know, you're. Oh, the, my favorite the other day. Is Dan Bongino's like Wilson is five foot nothing. He's a shrimp. He's a dwarf. <laughs> I'm five ten, bitch. <laughs> right, I mean, what? What? But they're obsessed with that kind of weird, yeah, all ball trolling insult game. Yeah, and it's it just it demonstrates a lot of their their like complete vacuity. It is surprising for the non digital natives, like I'm thinking of Bob Corker and some other people who could have stood up to Trump, maybe Graham. And Tucker Carlson is always terrified of trolls. I mean, you'd think these people need to hire round the clock security and Jules Kroll and Black Cube to keep them from <laughs> botnets. You know, in some ways, I kind of think that it puts so much torque on people's decision making, you know, for fear sure. of getting called fat 100,000 times or bald or short or sleeping with your boss, as they say to me when I worked for Marissa Mayer, that, you know, you won't do anything. It really is amazing to see grown men really afraid of those memes. One of my advantages is I know one thing about it, most of these guys. They have never been in a fight in their lives. Right. They are shit talkers who have never had to deal with anything beyond, you know, who hates them on their Fortnite <laughs> squad. The real only danger of a of a troll, you know, when you're in the Twitter Coliseum for a few days is um, self-stigma. If you've worried your whole life or you, since you went bald about baldness, then you walk around with a heavy heart all day. It only works if you believe it and it gets in there and bugs you. So today they were calling me anti-Semitic for attacking Sanders. Of course, right. The second you even look inside to see if you have hate in your heart, you've lost some equilibrium to them or, you know, gone to be like, I'm 5'10". So anyway, the only danger I think of this stuff is self-stigma. It is too bad that so many people are afraid of the Twitter Coliseum that they won't take the chance of breaking with Trump. I really was surprised with Corker. Yeah, look, Trump. Trump's Twitter feed is the single most determinative factor in his continued control of the Republican Party. That is really, really right. And, you know, it is it is crazy that we that, you know, people on Twitter are sitting cheek by jowl with him, you know, and just that like the relentless need. And I do think it's a civic responsibility, but to constantly Daniel Dale him show, you know, show that he's lying, show that he's psychotic, show, showing that right. he's, you know, we do have to keep doing that. But it is amazing that how much, you know, he sets the agenda there. Ugh. I've got a, an observation that I think is valuable in, okay. in dealing with you know, a lot of the Trump right troll folks, they all believe there is some new structure that exists, hmm. some new media architecture that is emerging, and they all think they're going to be the winners. Oh, right. Okay. They all believe that they're going to be on OANN or Fox 2.0 or yeah. Fox Digital or something 
that is basically a nationalist populist Trumpian network. They're like, I can do this. I can produce these beams. Got it. Well, I hope they are young and female because it doesn't look like there's a lot of room for the Fortnite crowd on OANN, but we'll see. All right. Project Lincoln is where you've ended up. And it is like, I gotta say, you do these, the videos are top shelf. They're fantastic. It's also a lot classier than your style. Like someone like David Frum or one of the one of your fancy friends is driving this. No, actually, it's not. Oh, okay. Your secret fancy side. You've caught me years ago. I'm having a secret fancy side. <laughs> yes, so I'm just going to confess it. You okay. know me. Yep. But look, the reality is we've got a team of people with different creative approaches, but a single creative architecture. To quote the Liam Neeson line, we have a specific set of skills. Yeah. A negative ad is an agnostic thing. I can make a negative ad. Uh, as we've discovered, that targets the people who were my previous employers and constituents. And there's a difficulty for them. A lot of these guys that, that have gotten wind of us, I've had a number of calls from chiefs of staff and from former clients who said, are you going to run an ad against da-da-da-da? And you know, my response is, we'll see. Yeah. And they're like, but, 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 but you used to work with, with us. Yeah. Am I now? No, I'm not. Are you with Trump? Yes, you are. Right. I'm your Sammy the Bull here. Like, I've flipped. Yeah, you flipped you, a long time ago. Do you think ago. there's an exemption? <laughs> right. Do you think there's some sort of thing where I'm going to go, oh, man, for old time's sake, did you ever think of me that way before as somebody who was sentimental about this shit? Because I ain't. And I had never been. Yep. Well, so I like that. So, Okay. A spell out for listeners what Project Lincoln is and who's behind it and then where it's going. Sure. Project Lincoln is a group of former Republican media and political operatives. It's Steve Schmidt. It's John Weaver. It's Reed Galen. It's myself. It's George Conway. Um, and, and we're adding people into our team by the day. I have to tell you the most surprising thing for us was, and yeah, some of these folks that are calling us are, calling us are never Trumpers. Yeah. But- a lot of people that are getting in touch with us now were kind of on the low. Interesting. They were kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm going to oppose Trump, but I'm not going to be out on TV every single day. Mm -hmm. And I think it sort of gave them permission to know that some guys who were like Mad Max style road warriors were going to get together, raise some money, which we've been very successful doing so far. And then flip that money around and put it on the end of, into ads. We're turning our investment, our fundraising around and producing a lot of work right now, getting it up on digital, getting it up on the air in, in these key races. And it's a, it's a simple leveraging point. We oppose Donald Trump and those who enable Donald Trump. And if we can be a, a counterforce, and if, if a person like a Susan Collins realizes that supporting Trump isn't going to just get her attacked from the left, it's going to get her attacked from the center and from the, and from the right. We feel like this could potentially start to alter some of the calculus that's being applied every day by folks who feel like they can play the game of, oh, I'm troubled by Trump. I'm so worried. My brow is so furrowed. And then turn around and vote for everything he wants. And also fe feeling like there's political life for them on the other side in some form or another. Right. And, and by the way, I, I told one, one Senate chief of staff who called me in a panic and said, don't, please, please, please don't, don't, don't. And I said, well, when is your person going to announce that they're going to vote to have witnesses in a real fair trial? Yeah. Well, it could be coming. It could be coming. I'm like, well, if it comes, you know what will happen? We won't just do something like say, oh, you did the right thing. We might run an ad that says, thanks, Senator so-and-so for doing the right thing. Yes, yes. Send him a and, birthday I mean, card and get on his list. And, call me yeah. crazy, 
But, you know, we, we have the ability to, to both provide the whip and the treacle, you know, the brimstone and the treacle. We're, we're, we're not <laughs> treacle. doing this. I know, right? Yeah, I like that you're not carrot sticks. You're just like, no. there's got to be a whip and tr- and treacle for whoever knows what that honey-ish <laughs> stuff is. I love that. Rick Wilson is a longtime political strategist for Republicans. He is also a never-Trumper of the first rank. He's the author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, and most recently, Running Against the Devil, a plot to save America from Trump and Democrats from themselves. Thank you so much for being here, Rick. Virginia, thank you so very much for having me. I always enjoy talking with you, and I look forward to seeing you soon. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Come to Twitter and troll us, or don't troll us, but meet us there. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then head over to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Become a Slate Plus member. It's a new year. Take advantage of it. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. That is seriously pennies a day. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.